of course, dahlias are not fashionable now. No, the, uh, a certain section of the public are snooty about dahlias. They're the ones who want the garden to be in pastel shades or grey and white. Is that a dart at me? <laughs> no, certainly not. You've got a great range of colour, haven't you? This course, Naomi, I we're listening to Christopher Lloyd and Rosemary Veary have this conversation about dahlias. Let's guesstimate that it was 30 years ago. Things have certainly changed in the perception of dahlias. But why was that the perception at one point that you can tell that Christo is getting a bit of a, a go at her and thinking that the dahlia, what he knew, there was a crowd of people that clearly didn't think they were popular at that moment. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess it must have been 25 or 30 years ago that that was taken. And um, I have to say, when I was growing up in the UK, Aliens were not really a thing. They were sort of things that had been growing. You knew about. You didn't see them around very much. You didn't get that that real sense that this was a flower that was, you know, thrusting forward, nothing coming. Um, and Christo was a real character. He he's well known for carrying on and being very opinionated about whatever plants he wanted to grow. And dahlias were those. Um, but actually, I personally remember the first time I saw dahlias. Um, actually used in gardening was a show garden at uh, Tatton Park, I think it was in the year 2000. And uh, it was the Welsh College of Horticulture had done a little show garden there based on dragons. They had lots of really good smoldering colours like dark red lobelia. And they used Dahlia Bishop of Sandas. And that was the first time that Dahlia struck me as a, as a, as a plant to design with. And since then, they've become more and more and more fashionable, more and more popular. You see more and more of them around. And, and currently, they're all over the place. I think um, somebody reliably told me the other day, it's the most fashionable plant of the year. I believe you are completely correct. That has been... I a, know I'm correct. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, Naomi is... Your book, first off, is, is beautiful, gorgeous. Uh, photography. Thank you very much. The combination of uh, your writing style and the photographs, I think, play together beautifully as well. There, can you say so? there is this moment happening that I, I think if we we trace maybe back to that period that we listened to the clip from, that the Delia has gone through this color transformation in people's minds that at first they were thought of that like this hot color garden. And has that been, you think, also a big part of this, that at first people were maybe just a little ignorant to the fact that they had such a color spectrum? I think the failures, I mean, certainly used to be so humongous. They're very, very large as plants, but um, they weren't necessarily that easy to grow around around the place. Um, and and back then, in what, I don't know, maybe the 1980s, maybe early 1990s, and the, the gardening styles were very, very different. It was all about, as Rosemary says, of course, they said it's whites and greys, very muted colours, you keep things separate. And there wasn't that enthusiasm, that exuberance, that willing to experiment that you get at the moment. And also, um, the, the breeding of dahlias create nice compact ones and nice and, and, and nice ones with sort of dark leaves. And the, the proliferation of single varieties. It wasn't it wasn't there at that point. And you know, the breeders have done an awful lot more to, a lot recently, in recent years, in the last 15, 20 years, to popularise it and, and make it a much more accessible plant in relation to the way that we 
is for humans in our garden. And I have to say that I do think that social media has had a big, um, given dahlias, actually quite a lot of flowers, but just that photogenic is a bit of a boost because um, you don't even need to grow them to go, oh, that's lovely, isn't it? That's absolutely lavish and wonderful. And all the colors and that versatility. And you can't really get bored of dahlias. They are, without question, the most grammable of all of the flowers, I think, that are out there in the world. They're, there's very few that you can just, even just by your your deadheading, can look good in a photo. It's yeah, one I, of the few that you can do that with. It's tulips. But so, yeah, there's no, no brain of it. So, um, the, uh, the ability of a dahlia to look good under all circumstances is unrivaled. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the changeover. And this is something that's come up a few times in the podcast with roses, but I think dahlias were part of this too, that the show world of cut flowers and flower shows was a part of their early period too, that that was something that maybe kept them in that lane a little bit. Did you see that in the UK as well in researching for the book that they were a flower show? flower along with things like roses? Yes, I think they probably were. I mean, other than the, the garden show I was telling you about a moment ago, you would see them in very ordinary pots, and very uniform, very, very large, not very accessible. You couldn't really imagine growing one yourself, and you couldn't imagine necessarily how you might use it at home. And in some ways, I think that the showing of dahlias, I mean, that was something that was encouraged and sponsored in, uh, in sort of early dahlia development. And I think that's led to their initial, um, or one of the things that led to their initial um, popularity. But I think latterly, it's one of the things that led to the downfall. I mean, the sort of a plant that demands so much perfection, so much deadheading, so much just cutting off their secondary buds to waste. Um, it wasn't. It, it, it got a reputation of being far more high maintenance than it actually is, and I think that was turn off for many people. It's always interesting, still here in the states, and I'm sure you have some of these people that you've probably come across as well. That if they do show flowers, flower shows, to see the painstaking, the disbudding, that they are literally going for this perfect flower, and it has very little to do with gardening sometimes. It has an awful lot to do with, with showmanship and makeup and glamour. And I mean, I, I did gardening shows early in my career. The first thing that I, first job I got was organizing exhibits at gardening shows. And the vegetable exhibitors, you wouldn't dare go around touching anything. You might you know, damage the bloom on, on, on a beautiful red cabbage or something. And, you know, if you, watch the people prepare their exhibit, they go out with a pair of scissors and they snip each little petal, each little um, uh, leaf. If there's any damage at all, it's cut off and reshaped. And if, if a petal shows any sort of marking at all, it'll be removed with tweezers and, and the remaining petals nudged up just to fill the gap. Because rather like, rather like the rest of us, the judges judge what they see not what they don't see. You have to make sure they don't see the things that you don't want to be judged on, um, which is really a metaphor for life, wouldn't you say? Yes. Well, and it's, it's interesting how so many plants get trapped sometimes. 
in between these, uh, the collector realm and then sometimes the academic realm. And those two groups are typically extremely opinionated. And, <laughs> and occasionally it creates these lifelong misconceptions that the plants are then tagged with. Do you, do you feel that dahlias may have been one of those that just early on they sort of got labeled, this is the problem, this is where, how they should be used, and it's taken us maybe just until the last five, seven years maybe to start trending them another direction? Potentially. Um, I mean, everything's much more globalized. People talk, people communicate, there are different ways of getting information um, now that, than, than there used to be. I mean, even within the duration of my career, Originally, I would pick to a book, now I tap it into Google or whatever. And, and plants do get trapped. I mean, they do get labeled with that. Oh, these are the sorts of people who are, who are interested in them. They can, others, I don't know if it's people don't dare trespass or they couldn't possibly aspire. Um, but I mean, I, I wouldn't attempt myself to grow show quality daily. But I'm more than happy to have as many as I can um, squeeze into my little garden. Um, I think one plant that may have um, managed to swerve that is sweet peas. Though I don't ever remember sweet peas being unpopular, and they are very much a bouquet flower, an exhibition flower, and um, they have that scent and that glamour. Um, I will be forever again, jealous of sweet peas that you can grow in the UK. By the way, that is one of the things here in Tennessee that is a real struggle for me. Any early tender spring plant that doesn't like it when it's 95 in May. So I have to live vicariously no, it wasn't like through this. I have to live vicariously <laughs> through your sweet peas, Naomi. Oh, they are very, very lovely. I have to say, I was. You have to bottle the perfume and send it over. But then again, even with sweet peas, there was a time I think, sort of late 80s, that the so the very brash, the very manufactured-looking flower was was de rigueur. It was what was what was uh, we'd be deride it now as as being you know um, petrol sta- petrol station kind of um, bunches of carnations or petrol station bunches of roses. But it was a, a lot of them were imported and, and, and grown um, you know in, in highly highly chemicalised regimes. Um, and actually, in terms of what we grow in the UK, the uh, domestic flower market and, and the, the grower florist has, has really boomed. And that's similar to what we're seeing here. What I do, obviously, I grow 9,000 mm. dahlias and roses and, and fill that same need. When you look at that period of the 1980s that you mentioned, I was going through and, and researching and you had a blog entry several years ago talking about how I think it was the RHS put out a report that sort of said that like the 1980s generation was sort of a the, the gap generation when it came to gardening. Well, that's very much my, my perception. Um, I mean, I have the great good fortune of coming from a long line of plant, plant nuts. You know, my family is very enthusiastic about gardening and, uh, and about biology and about botany and about all sorts of things, and you know, I was I was first in the queue, so it turns out when it, when that was handed out. Um, but a lot of my contemporaries, certainly when I was younger, didn't have that connection with plants. You know, I remember being very young and 
you know, five or six perhaps and planting radishes with my with my uncle. I remember my grandmother's orchard and her showing me the owl an owl sort of downhill over the fruit trees and um and but as I grew up I, I realised that people weren't as connected to gardening as I am. Weren't connected to plants. Didn't, you know, so mustard crest on the windowsill and didn't plant sweet peas and light scented stocks just for two. And 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 that was a sort of jazz experience where the grandparents who used to do all the gardening used to grow their own in the in the wartime period would you know died or weren't that interested or just weren't that connected to pass that on to the next generation and those that grew into a generation of young people and parents who were not so well equipped to pass that onward um, and I mean actually. That blog must have been a little while back now because, I mean, the growth in school gardens in the UK and the enthusiasm for growing your own and growing in small spaces, and that's filled an awful lot of gaps. And there are people who have started gardening now um, who wouldn't have dreamed of it 10 years ago. And, and again, that's a lot to do, I think, with all the information that's available and and. and the fact that people around you do it. You do what your, your contemporaries and your peers do. And if you're listening to terrible 80s pop music and making your hair big, then you don't do so much gardening. But if everybody is suddenly planting an apple tree and um, and, and, and vying over who's going to make the best raspberry jam, then, then you do that. And uh, quite frankly, I'm with gardening all the way. That's one of the changes that I, that I, I see a little glimmer, at least here in the States, on this subject, Naomi, because this is obviously a real passionate subject for me that there was a period I mentioned before we started recording to you that everyone here, essentially landscaping became more of what it's referred to as. I also have a pet peeve of mine, Naomi, that people refer to it as your yard here in the States versus a garden. It's also a pet peeve of mine. But landscaping became the fundamental. You bought a house, you had a landscape. You didn't have a garden. And was that, as you mentioned, there, there were some contemporaries of yours that, that didn't have that same passion. What, what was their approach? Were they just out of it completely? Did they have a landscape service? Like, how did they go about, or did they just have nothing? Did hardscaping become their solution at that time? Hardscaping, that's a terrible thing to say. Isn't it? Oh, I Isn't it? <laughs> But you know, even at university, my 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 bedroom was was filled with plants, and I'd go out. And you know, if I if I had a rental a rental house somewhere, I'd try and grow things in it. And I'd always try and grow things. It's just like an obsessive compulsion, really. I always like to plant things wherever I am. Um, but it's fair to say, you know, in my in my early twenties, the buying from my contemporaries was was not really. Fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, these. You, you see it more on films about America from this side of the pond, really. Um, and it's very, very tidy. Um, the concept of having a wild garden or, you know, a naturalistic garden isn't really there. Um, but from what I've seen, you know, as you say, it's that landscaping, that hardscaping and about um, neat fences and, 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 and immaculate lawns in America are, you know, is the main thing, I think, I don't, I don't want to 
um, give the idea that I think every every American gardener is only interested in their lawn because that would just be rude. It may be, um, it may but, be accurate though, Naomi. It may be accurate. I mean, it's, you're, it's, you're allowed to say you're allowed to say that. I'm not. <laughs> but I going to say first that um, it's been in the UK. It's an art form. It's a craft. You know, it's a more than a functional thing as gardening or making things look nice. And there's the, that whole history of head gardeners who are highly trained and skilled and working there, and you know, the guys who are in the factories and the miners, going back to sweet peas. They've come out of a horrible, grubby, lowly paid job, and in their leisure time, they grow exquisite chrysanthemums or sweet peas. And then there's the gentleman gardeners and the plant hunters, um, and actually monkeying around with plants and exploring it and and, and that, that craftsmanship is something that's very ingrained in British horticulture. That legacy is clearly something that didn't always export to the United States. And when we talk about dahlias, they had that similar legacy that there was this period of time where they were super rare. That I want you to walk us through, as you do in the book so well, the, the first period where dahlias come out of Central America, and then they start heading over to Europe. Just walk us through a little bit of that timeline and some of the players involved. Well, yeah, dahlias are, their arrival in, in, in Europe was um, in large part to the Spanish conquest. So in around about 1525, the story goes that um, the conquistadors found the local people cultivating a flower. Um, you know, they were they were over there sort of pillaging, you know, sending stuff back to Europe by the bucket load. Um, and then there was, um, in the 1570, I think it was, King Philip II of Spain sent his physician, because of course a physician isn't just a, a doctor, a physician is somebody who is learned and is good at investigating things and finding stuff. And a lot of physicians were also botanists. Discovered. And this chap, and I, my, I speak, well, basically no Spanish, you don't have to forgive my pronunciation. So, a gentleman called Francisco Hernandez de Toledo, Mexico. And this chap sent in a report to describe Eudalia type with some illustrations that another chap had done. So, it looked an awful lot like Dahlia Mercii and, and some various other, other forms. Um, and then, some years later, uh, 1789, um, Vincente Cervantes, the director of the Botanic Garden in Mexico City, sent them. Because that's the great thing is for botanic gardens. They say they send um, uh, material around the world for conservation and for study. Anyway, this was this daily material was sent to Antonio Jose Cavaniles, who was the director of the Royal Gardens in Madrid. So you've got these um, these people who are being sent to the other side of the world with using the pocketbook of, of, of the king of the country or some you know, you know, an incredibly wealthy merchant, um, and sending the uh, the plant material they discover back to the highest gardens in the land, the royal gardens, botanic gardens, and that's where it where it lands. And there's not necessarily much of it, and people don't know very much about it. And it does something. People go, "Oh, wow! Look at those flowers!" And they wait till they've propagated some, and 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 then they send it down the line to another significantly. Um, Prominent garden or, or, or situation of importance, um, and it's very much the thing where you would it would be a 
it was it would be a mark of your your wealth and of your influence and of your contact to have some of some of these exciting new plants. Um, and I think the fact that they the, the trickle down effect it does take quite a long time for for, for a new plant, exciting new plant, become available to the common man. That story of of dahlias, I think, is far lesser known than like the tulip madness story, which a lot of people are familiar with. The that crossover that we're talking about when it does become more available when production is there. When do we first see in the UK specifically? Dahlias become a little bit more widely available. Yeah, it's, it's true, you know. Um, I mean, in, in the early years, the nineteenth century, dahlias were very much a rich man's game. You know, they were being tinkered with in, in, in the gardens of, of chateaus and, and, and grand houses, um, where there was there was money to cultivate that level of horticultural expertise. Um, and you know, at that point, you know, if you were going to buy a tuber, it's a bit, as you said, a bit like tulips, um, the Something that was new might cost a hundred pounds, which is a little bit difficult to calculate. But maybe that would be um, several years' wages for a working man, um, and so not not very achievable for, 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 for the for the masses. But it was actually the Great Exhibition, which was um, held in London in 1861, and there and and were exhibited there, and it was a very very open open crowd. Um, you know, people came in and they saw saw all sorts of exciting. Things. And the masses fell in love with dahlias then and there. And this, in fact, is what led to the development of new varieties. So they had early, early cultivars and, and early hybrids. But it sort of put up like an arms race of, of, of um, new variety production went into went into motion all across Europe because people just wanted they wanted dahlias, they wanted more dahlias, it was exciting and new dahlias, um, which obviously incentivized. Incentivize the breeders no end. Did you get an opportunity to, and, and I think we see this a few places throughout the horticultural world, that some of the really interesting breeding that actually happens is sometimes more with hobbyist gardeners than with larger scale production nurseries? Possibly. Um, I think about dahlias is, is that sometimes they'll produce something completely new and exciting, almost spontaneous. Um, but I think, and, and also you have to remember that people were still shipping in new plant material for, for quite a long period. And the thing is, if, um, there's not always an awful lot of overlap with it within the regions. And if you put um, new varieties of, of a plant that doesn't necessarily meet, it, meet, meet its neighbours very often in the wild, the, the resultant hybridisation will produce things which which is Quite new and exciting. So it doesn't really matter if that's a hobbyist garden or whether it's the um, the finest garden in the land. But it's certainly the case that um, for many different um, many different plants, in fact, if, if there was a, a, a if it was seen as a status thing, then head gardeners and 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 then talented talented young things were very much incentivized by the gentlemen um, to to create and hybridize and Create create a whole sort of palimpsest of exciting new varieties. I mean, across the world, there are now over sixty thousand different varieties of dahlia, uh, which will keep us going for a bit, wouldn't you say? <laughs> that is one of the 
Now, I have to ask you personally in, in researching the book, do you find occasionally I have this thought on many plant varieties that the number is, is a little staggering sometimes and there really isn't a great process to go to make sure that new introduction is actually of merit sometimes, that there's a lot of duplicity out there with uh, red dahlia ball decorative, that it's almost confusing if you're just a, a gardener looking for a particular variety sometimes? Yes, I think that probably is the case. Um, and I guess we'll talk in a while about snowdrops and orchards. Do you find that you know, if you're going to create a new snowdrop, how is it interesting and different from all the other snowdrops that are similar? And again, with, with fruit trees, um, at one point in America, there was estimated to be about sort of 14,000 different varieties of apples. Um, but a lot of them had synonymous names. So one of them I dug up had about twelve different, um, uh, twelve different names for the same apple. Just could have moved down the line, down the road a hundred miles, and uh, go, oh, this is our apple. What's it called? Well, I don't know. Let's call it, you know, Ben's Red or something like that. Um, so the great thing about dahlias, and dahlias very specifically, is that they all grow the same. They all like the same thing. You don't get same level, of, I mean, not not in my experience. Anyway, you don't get the same level of uh, um, difference. So if I'm growing apple trees, I know that my agronomist russet does not like damp Welsh weather. But bound to fall, be perfectly happy in it. But if I want to grow dahlia, um, I don't know what Arabian Nights and dahlia um, willow flex, I, I know I'll grow them exactly the same. Exactly the same way, and, and assuming the slugs don't get them first, they, sh they should both perform. Um, so, um, I suppose, given the, the, the first job when I was writing my, my daily book, um, was, uh, which I should probably just say at this point is called Dahlias and published by Pavilion, um, or uh, Give Smith and Mass, actually, um, was actually to narrow down the huge range of available dahlias. To something which was a nice range of colours, representative, and a nice representative range of forms. So you've got the ones which are bicolored or tricolored, and the ones which are striking, exciting, and get the ones which are very sophisticated. And you, know, you have to include some like Cafe Olay, for example, which is probably the most popular dahlia in the world right now. Um, but in terms of practically growing them, my primary advice to people would be pick something like the look of, and that will actually. It's compact enough to fit, fit wherever it is that you're gardening and go for it. One of the things I have noticed, we're going to have this is a, a tangent subject, Naomi. The I've been doing this thing on Instagram where I'm growing a lot of seeds that I really have no interest in growing because people need a lot of help with seeds and growing things from it, Naomi. So that's why I'm doing it. It's essentially me just trying to create content for Instagram. But here's something that's been really interesting. There's a lot of species of whatever variety of plant it might be that are being given common names, but then the common name switches depending upon who the supplier is. Are, are you seeing any <laughs> of that in the UK a little bit? And I find it a tad frustrating because from my perspective, I just rest on my botanical nomenclature and I'm like, no, that's the exact same plant. But if I'm new to gardening, 
it would be a little disappointing because I'm expecting this plant to be different from that, but it turns out it might in fact be the exact same plant you're buying. It is a real challenge. I mean, I write an awful lot of gardening magazines, but they require slightly subtly different things. Um, but I consider our role to be in part educative. This is an exciting new variety. This is how you grow it. But also, Latin's there for a very good reason. As you say, it's momentous here. You talk about the genus and you talk about the species. Um, and I'm struggling now off the top of my head to think of a, of a good example. I was thinking about it, British wildflowers, for example. And every 20 miles down the road, you might get something which had a, um, a, a, a different name. So um, there's a sticky sort of plant, which we call cleavers which is also sometimes known as Elton's Buttons, and it's also mm-hmm. sometimes known as Sticky Billy. And, you, and, and, and everybody goes, oh, yes, that's the plant. Everybody knows what it's called. Um, or, but, but it, or knows what it is and what it does and how it grows, um, because it's all the same plant. But the regional colloquial names differ. And this must be an even bigger problem somewhere like America. But your problems arise when you have... Um, a situation where people are trying to simplify it and make it seem less intimidating for new gardeners, when in fact they are making the di- diluting the actual the truth of the situation, which is it is this plant, this is how it's called, this is its Christian name, this is its surname, um, and that you can also call it um, you, you can call it Elton's buttons, or you can call it Old Man's beard, or you can call it anything you like. Um, but it doesn't all back to the same plant. And this is something I found actually which is very interested in, in Europe. Um, and so I've been visiting French gardens and my French is uh, manageable, I guess. It's improving, shall we say, improving conversational French. And you go along to a garden and you talk to, to, the, to the gardener and you say, Monsieur le jardinier, and they say yes, and they carry on in French. You go, um, well, could we just, you know, slow down a little bit they go do you not speak French they say, oh yeah kind of um, and then you walk around and I discovered that if you speak botanical Latin in a French accent then all of a sudden you have a common language um, so you could talk about taxis and bushes les rosières and you can so you've got um, you and box and, and rose trees and you understand in a different language and, and from that point you have that Common ground, and you can actually discuss um, problems. You can you can teach yourself the French slug very quickly, and <laughs> you know, and and, and and box blight or whatever. And uh, and and it's it's the same. It's it's just a case of learning the terminology. And I think, well, you know, if, if you had a, a new a new smartphone app and they called it something else, you wouldn't you know, give it a pet name and, and then expect everybody else to know what it is. It would be the Samsung Galaxy, wouldn't it, or whatever it might be. Well, and the, um, and I don't. Where I also see this extending into, which has been really fascinating on the seed front here in the States, is we're taking what is a straight species plant, but then they're giving it a cultivated variety name. And I think there's a real lack for new gardeners and maybe understanding that difference. That this is just a species seed that you're purchasing. This isn't a cultivated variety that's always even going to be true to seed. Are, are you seeing some of that too? Like that's another, at least here, a marketing tactic that I see being used a lot. I 
haven't noticed it particularly. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Um, I mean, going back specifically, I always, if I'm going to use a common name to make it seem a bit more friendly, I do try and use the genus name at the very least. It will just the species name. Um, I mean, some things are sold as, as, a, as a variety when, um, or as a specific cultivar, when it, and you know it won't necessarily come through from seed, like lavender, for example. Um, but I haven't noticed it so much, but um, and, but I'm, I'm sure it happens, and, and you know it, it depends very much on the qualities of supply. And I suppose the I'd, I'd trot out the same advice on that one as, as I would anywhere else is that you, know, if you tend to get what you pay for, and you need to get things from a reputable supplier who's a specialist of the thing that you're trying to buy, um, and then you'll get something good, particularly if you order it early in the season. Um, so that's something with daily achievers, isn't it? It's always best to get your order in nice and early while the, the stock's fresh and um, and you've got lots, lots and lots of choice because once they start selling out, you uh, you end up with much less to choose from. Do you have, do you, this is something, because obviously you love dahlias, as, a, as do I. Do you have a moment, and I'm not sure, I would have to imagine this does happen, where there are some commodity big retail stores in the UK that bring them in severely early. There are places here, big box uh, department stores, Home Depot and Lowe's specifically. I'll never get sponsorships from these two places, Naomi, but they bring <laughs> in their dahlias in the mid of January and they just sit there for here. Like in this region, the average last frost date is April 10th or 15th, but they're bringing the dahlias in in the first week of January and they sit in there under these fluorescent lights. Do you ever have this moment where you're shopping and you come by something like that? And I just, for me, I'm just pained by anybody that unknowingly buys this plant sometime in April to plant it after it's been there for four months almost. Well, absolutely. Or, or, or goes, oh, that would be nice. Oh, I could have some flowers. That would be brilliant. And they get it and they couldn't, they put it outside and the next spot is dead. Um, or even worse, where it's put out there, so say as a dormant plant, but it's been dug up since September, and by or by the end of January, it's completely dried out and dead anyway, because somebody's left in the stockroom next, um, next to a radiator. Um, I get very, very frustrated um, by less expert retailers daring to sell plants to less expert. Consumers, I think if you're going to sell something that's alive, you ought to be selling it to the point where it's alive. And I really feel that it's, it's just not fair because the person gets it home and then it doesn't grow. And then they start talking about having black thumbs and that they, they, they are certain death to all plants. And they'll never know that it wasn't alive when they took it off the shelves. I've, I've, I've sort of collared people in, 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 in the aisles and got out. Like, Hey, Mr. Shop Guy, you know, these plants are dead. And they go, oh, no, 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 they're just, they're just, oh, what's the word? What's the word? What's the word? I go, dormant. No, it's not. It's dead. And this one's moldy. Trust me. I know about this stuff. Um, Don't do you, you, I have moments where occasionally I feel like I need to wear a button or a t shirt that says that. I know about this stuff, Naomi, because at times I have found myself. It's a vigilante moment, admittedly. But, uh, but, but, you know, I've actually, I've actually, you know, approached them and said, you've got to take this stuff off the shelves, it's dead. But the next person through the door might go, oh, lovely, I had to grow some raspberries. And you can't sell raspberries if you, if you try to, but these guys had. 
So anyway, I agree with you on that one. No, I I had a moment on Instagram several weeks ago where I was in one of these big box stores and they had peony root starts and they had already pushed about seven inches of growth up. And I have that moment as, as I think anyone that's really passionate about gardening, we want more people to garden. It, it adds to the community. Maybe they grow a cool plant. We trade plants. There's so many reasons for it. But you don't want someone, as you said, to have that horrible first experience with a plant that literally is dead. That's part of it for me that just is, is terrifying to think about. Well, I think it's their fault. Yes. You know, they, they, they don't. They, they think it's their fault. They think they think there's something they've done wrong. It's not. You, know, you and I couldn't grow it, and, and, and the finest garden on land couldn't grow it. So, you know, it's dead. That's what it means. <laughs> you know, and, and I, it, I think it's very upsetting. I, I, I think you know, it's not it's not the sort of level of encouragement that I would. You know, but also it's likely to be the people with less money and the people who are less good gardeners who are buying it at that level as well. So it's like, it's like a triple whammy, really. No, you are you are so correct, and it's the magic of gardening is is lost if you have that experience clearly, and people do personalize their anything they do with plants becomes a very connected experience for many people, and that first one being that way is just horrible. I, I know for you, you are someone unlike myself. This is uh, interesting. Uh, our guest a couple of podcasts ago, Alan Armitage, and I are really the only two people I've met so far who are this passionate about plants at like a professional scale, Naomi, who didn't grow up with gardening in their family at, at any level. You did. And <laughs> I know that your your love for snowdrops started really early for you. It did. It did. I um snowdrops have always been been around. Um, I think I think my family used to harvest them. We used to like pick, pick them and send them to the flower market from where my my father's family grew up in Somerset. But um, uh, yeah, when I was when I was little, um, I used to get up on on the fourteenth of February, put on my Wellington boots, and I'd put my pajamas, and I'd go out in the grey dawn, and I'd go down the end of the garden, and I picked my mother a little a little posy of, of snowdrops. Valentine's Day. So I knew that these ones that my grandmother had brought up from Somerset um, would be in flower reliably by that point. Whereas the local ones, the Welsh ones that carpeted the orchard, they would be two, three weeks behind. They wouldn't, sometimes they didn't even get going until March of the year. It's chilly. So from being really quite young, I knew, I didn't know why, I didn't know how many there were, but I knew that there was more than one sort of snowfall. And it was when I started writing about them as an adult and started visiting snowdrop gardens that my eyes just opened up all these different different species, different um, different types, the doubles, the yellows, and the, the absolute diversity of snowdrops was, was amazing. And it, it, I, I always find that if I start writing about any plant, I end up with a massive passion for it. And sometimes it stays and sometimes it, you know, it fades slightly. But with snowdrops, it's something which which is carried with me always, I guess. Is there a a period with with snowdrops that they have this magical beginning to the the spring season, those those dreary days of winter, as you said in February, and you go out and you see this harbinger of spring moment 
for anyone that's ever grown them. Is there a a way for people to think about snowdrops in a garden setting? What are your recommendations if you have someone who's like, you know, I don't know about this snowdrop thing, Naomi. Where where do I put them? Where where do I want snowdrops to to live in my world? We want to plant snowdrops where they're happy. Um, and snowdrops, they are early plants. I mean, the very earliest ones arrive in late autumn. Um, but the, the main drag of snowdrops appear from, you know, the turn of the year through until February or the beginning of March. Um, and what they need is really good drainage in summer. So they don't like to sit in the wet when they're dormant. There's plenty of light on their photosynthesizing, so in the spring, which is why they do very well under deciduous trees. And really important not to damage those leaves until, until they, they go over naturally. Um, and they need plenty of water when they're in growth. And ideally, they need plenty of food as well. I mean, snowdrops is one of those things which the posh and expensive ones have got a bit of a reputation of being not so easy. But um, your average, the average moderately priced snowdrop um, is, is a very good thing, and it will grow very well indeed. Um, but and where's the best place to put them? So... I tend to put my specialist snowdrops around trees, so around something which will provide a little bit of a summer shade and a little bit of summer dryness because it'll suck up the water from the ground, um, but will let the light through in the winter, but also which will mark the location of the snowdrops. Because one of the things you don't want to do is put, uh, put a shade through them. So, I mean, as a semi-permanent arrangement, they could work very well with hellebores. They work very well in mass plantings with uh, crocuses and dwarf daffodils. And I've seen them looking great under tree tin. Um, and it's not ideal necessarily to grow them in a highly managed border or something like herbaceous perennials. Because if you want to divide your herbaceous perennials and you can't see the snowdrops, it in- increases the risk of putting a, sn- a stage through them enormously. Um, but any bit of lawn that you weren't going to mow, any bit of woodland underneath the hedge, and they'll spread around very happily once they get going. And there's a garden in America, Winter Tour, which was um, populated with snowdrops back in the early days, in the snowdrop boom. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lovely spread there. Um, so you can grow them in pots, but you don't want to keep them in pots on a permanent basis. So I tend to plant them up, put them near a windowsill or something, so you can actually enjoy them. Because, of course, the other problem with snowdrops, and that's not a problem per se, is if it's really dark and chilly, you don't necessarily want to go out into the into the cold, cold snow mm. um, and see how they're getting on. But if you if you put them in a nice tub and put them near a window, so you can, at least you can enjoy them. But um, you do, if the weather's going to get down to lower than about minus five degrees centigrade, I'm afraid I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Um, you do need to bring them under cover because they don't really like being frozen solid in a pot. Whereas they'll take any sort of, of, of low temperature in the ground. It's quite interesting, really. Now, selfishly, Naomi, I wanted to also have you on the podcast because I have this vision of crocus and snowdrops in a grass lawn. And mm-hmm. I would love to do that. Is there a species of snowdrops that can deal with a little bit of summer heat 
is there a particular variety or species that you can think of that would help me out to make this vision come true, Naomi? Unless he... They don't like to be hot, hot. I mean, generally speaking, it's better to give them some shade. I mean, my experience is that Elwesi varieties will take a little more warmth and, and dryness than... Um, uh, than perhaps the Nivalis varieties. Um, I'd plant some more shade if I were you, to be honest. I'd get the trees in first, <laughs> just put, the, put the small bulbs in afterwards. No, and, well, and, and I um, think that's, that's one of the things for everyone, that you go through this period of time with something like snowdrops, that the experimentation is occasionally lost for people with gardening sometimes, Naomi. You know, we want this very precise thing to do and many times it's just that experimentation of finding oh this is a place snowdrops don't like but maybe if i move them 30 feet over here in my garden they would like it there well it's a, if you could keep it a little bit damper in some capacity if there's a line of water underneath or something i mean it's very much specific to your garden and it's hard to make any hard and fast pronouncements um without actually seeing it without actually experiencing it but generally speaking it's best to put a plant where it wants to be rather than trying to persuade it to be somewhere where it doesn't. Um, and snowdrops are small and they do grow they dry out easily. In, in, I mean, you could you could try planting them really deep, actually. Um, you can plant snowdrops much deeper than you think you can because um, they'll come up for garden. Mm-hmm. And there are gardens where I've been and I've tried to dig them up and it's more than a spade depth down that they've, that they've pulled themselves down to. Mm. So if you've had a bit which got a little bit of shade and um, a little bit of moisture and, and the most likely spot, and you planted them, I don't know what, a foot deep, maybe even a little bit more, it might be worth experimenting with something mm. like that. Um, What's the best time to plant snowdrops? Are they, are they best planted in fall? Um, yeah, well, there's a, there's a, a difference of opinion in snowdrop world about when the best time to plant snowdrops is. Um, and it has a lot to do with the fact that originally when a lot of the snowdrops were brought out of Turkey in, in, in Greece, uh, they would, they'd been dried out very badly and, and a lot of the bowls were dead going back to, um, the, the problems in the supply line with, with plants in general, if you're trying to sell something alive. So you've got this idea arising that the only way of telling us that a snowdrop was actually alive was actually planted in the green. But unfortunately, snowdrops are very sensitive to having their roots dried out. They don't recover or regrow, and it can knock the, the plant back in you know, several years. Um, so you can get really, really fresh plants in the green and get them straight back into the ground. But from the, from the own growth, um, you can plant them you know, towards the end of the season. Um, I don't know if that would be for you, um, perhaps late February, early March. Um, it might, if you're trying to plant bulbs and plant them very deep, um, it would be better to plant them in, in late summer or early, um, early, uh, early autumn, um, just because you, you can plant them much deeper because you would normally plant uh, growing bulbs back to the level at which they were already growing. So if you want to sneak them in you know, 10 centimetres lower to try and give them that, winter, that summer cool, um, and, and some, some of the residual moisture, then I would recommend having a go in, in um, 
yeah, September or so, October. You have literally done two books on maybe the most opposite of plants humanly possible in their look. <laughs> Has that ever dawned on you? How did you pick those two? I mean, they, they're fun, they, they seem to be polar opposites in the garden to me. Well, that's an oddity. Both ones pick me. Um, so in both cases, um, I don't know. I must be my guardian angel or something. But the, uh, the, the respective editors at Timber Press and at Pavilion, they called me out of the blue and they said, um, I think you're interested in this, aren't you? And I go, well, yes, you're right, I am. They say, well, how about a book? And I go, uh, yep, <laughs> I can do that. Um, and, but then, actually, I found my entire gar- career in gardening picked me. You know, it, it kind of it felt when I started my first job you know, on a gardening magazine running events, it very much felt like I'd landed in the right place. I hadn't chosen the role, the role of going, right, you over here now, this is where you need to be. Um, so, so yeah, so uh, it's, it's polar opposites, but you often find with them, with, with gardeners, they have more than one field of interest because once you once you've heard up the garden, so it's go over, how do you entertain yourself for the remaining, you mm. know, 10 months, yeah. Is that something and, sometimes, do you ever look at it from a perspective of maybe sometimes that's what separates collector from gardener in what sense Sorry, yeah. that there are people that just clearly they collect one plant species sometimes and that's it and that they don't necessarily always have a garden of the same it's not a mixed garden of any kind and there's uh, almost yes, a bit yes, of a yes, yes. different approach and mentality for that i've always wondered that personally that if you had just a, if you were crazy about delphinium and that's all you grew were delphiniums. What do you do in July? Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose there's the obsessive, but in England you tend to find that that people garden around the edges even if they've got a fairly major obsession. I mean, I know a guy who has a squillion billion hostas, um, and most of his gardens don't hostas, but there is a bit around the corner which just doesn't have hostas on. Um, but I think... I think I think most gardeners will have mission creep, um, and they start somewhere. But as you know, it's very easy to go to grow dahlias in the summer, but small bulbs in winter. You know, fruit fruit in in the in the shoulder seasons, and um, and it's fascinating and it's interesting, and there's always more to find out. So I, I would say that most gardeners are polymaths rather than collectors. You know. Uh, you know, they, 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 they love easily and widely the gardeners by and large. Yes, uh, agree. I think there is that almost gateway for some people that enter as collectors and then finish as, as gardeners in some way. L- let's talk about the fruit <laughs> orchard because this is something I will I will share something with you here that people don't know. This is the first time me sharing this. In two thousand six. Some of the very first things I planted here at Natchez Glen were peach trees. I did have a vision of a home orchard. And then very quickly, that that obsession changed to many other things like we were just talking about. And we went from that to this. And has it evolved over the years? Your first experiences in your book were also very early with orchard. But take a second here for us. And I think sometimes people have scale 
in the word orchard that they associate with it. That if I'm going to grow fruit trees, I need a huge, vast property to do it. Yeah, I think that probably is the case. Um, and I think that that's something that with my with my book called Orchard Odyssey, it's very much about a journey of fruit. And people, I think, over the last 50 or so years have become quite disconnected from orchards. They're the sort of thing that's viewed in sepia retrospect, something that's wonderful and romantic and, you know, you can pick the fruit and there's flowers underneath and bumblebees and, 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 and people go, well, that's lovely, but they've all been cut down, you can't have those anymore. But here in the UK, they have a definition of an orchard. Um, it's a conservation definition, which is basically uh, set to make it easy to identify where an orchard might be or might have been for, for conservation purposes. So anything with, is five trees with crown edges not more than 20 metres apart. So that's a very, very large space. But if you're talking about that, you're talking about a standard tree. But the point is, is that with modern fruit stock, and that's something that... Um, couldn't be adopted or repurposed for, for domestic purposes. So you can grow fruit on much, much smaller plants, really very small plants in some cases. So my my, my current urban garden is, is, is really tiny. Within it, I've got three dwarf peach trees, three dwarf pears, one, two dwarf apples, plum, or Szechuan pepper because that's as you do. Um, and I think that, that, that there's a lot to be done in improving people's sense of ownership of fruits. The fact that it is something that's accessible. In fact, you can, you know, it's on, on, on a dinky scale if you have if you have five dwarf trees in, in, a, in one of your, as you say, urban yards. Um, but it is an orchard of sorts, and it gives it can give you that flavour, it gives you this heritage variety, it can give you those local varieties that allow you to um, continue and propagate unusual unusual local types of fruit. Um, and I think a lot of what I was writing about is about repositioning the orchard so that it's relevant to how we live these days. And in some ways, it's not really based in the UK. I mean, it follows the journey of the fruit from their original fruit, wild fruit forest in Kazakhstan down the Silk Road, you know, the development of grafting, the movement up through Europe with the Romans, um, and then the the transition of, of, of the tree fruit across off, across to America with, with the original settlers, and then and then with the pioneers, and it's. It, and so there's a journey of fruit, and then there's my journey and how I've discovered it and the things that I've discovered as I went, but also encouraging people to see fruit of the landscape. So I don't know if it's the case um, in, in America, but if you drive down a motorway in the UK, you'll very often see in autumn you know, lots and lots of fruit trees growing in the hedges, and you know, sometimes the fruit, the, the apples on the tree might persist until March. So there's lots and lots of variation from you know, uh, trees that are grown from pits that have been thrown out of the window. Um, and that was one of the great things about um, the fruit tradition in America is that the grafted varieties were taken over from Europe were developed in you know, nice temperate climates. Um, and they didn't necessarily do with, deal with the extremes so well. But they also took loads and loads of pits which were very uh, genetically diverse. And it's a little bit haphazard, but 
did mean that you got an awful lot of variety, which could deal with the very, very diverse climate in America. And so everybody could have a fruit tree, so everybody could, everybody could eat. Um, and so that, I, I just want people to take up their own personal journey, you know, walk through the park and see if there's a mulberry tree there, perhaps, or a walnut, or look in the hedges and, and, and discover that it might be a pear or an apple, or just put a little a little fruit tree um, in, into, into the planting scheme. Because you get lots of really nice structures. You could underplant with bulbs, you can underplant with dahlias. Um, you put it in a formal um, a formal garden, or, or you could have something naturalistic and wild, you know, with all the great plants you've got, like camassias underneath. So it can be very, very, very ornamental. It doesn't have to be a functional thing. And, and there's also, I really would like people to connect. It's surprising that so many people, when you know, grow your own, eat local, all of these things that even you know globally have shown up in the last twenty years or so, that people reach to grow things that are annuals, like tomatoes, sometimes before they would do something like a fruit tree. There, there feels like there's maybe a certain, and, and it's ironic from a botanical horticultural perspective that there's almost an intimidation, maybe, for people to take on a tree versus a tomato plant. Well, I, I suppose in some ways there is, you have to have that, that you have a gateway drug of, of, of maybe, you know, one of those little tubs of herbs that you find in the supermarket, you know, the ones that are all, all sort of lanky underneath the lights and they're over water and they go all floppy and dying. Um, but it always amazes me that people think, you know, this is a really good idea. You can have cup, cut and come up and salad crops, but they don't last terribly long and you know, they go all moldy around the bottom. Whereas a fruit tree, and if you plant it right, um, it's, it's, it's low maintenance, it's decorative, it's got beautiful flowers, it's got tasty fruit, um, and you know, it's, it gives you winter structure in your garden. And I, I think it, I do think it's strange that, that people don't think that it's obvious. So you know, there's stuff that's high maintenance. I mean, if you're if you're, if, you're, if you're time poor, you don't grow. Um, it's very true and it is something when i first started doing things with plants it, it was the initial thought that i had that i was traveling a lot at that time i knew i could just put in a certain amount of effort in throughout the course of the year but it wasn't going to be something like an annual vegetable garden where literally i have to be out there almost daily tending to things keeping an eye on them let's round out the conversation here naomi with what's going to be a real challenge and it's the cheesy question that i get all the time so i'm going to try to take it from a different perspective <laughs> dahlias th there's too many to choose from this is the question what's your favorite dahlia naomi I'm not asking you that if there is something for people that they don't necessarily associate with them, that if you're you're thinking about Adelia, they haven't really thought about it. What's something that for you personally that you have found that gets you inspired or really gets you interested in them? That is a tough question. Um, I think it's the fact that you can... It doesn't really matter what your tastes are because there's something to suit it. There's something to suit the scheme. It doesn't really matter how formal it is or how blousy it is. Um, and I, I think it's about connecting with what you like. I mean, I, I'm, my, my favorites slightly change every time. I, 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 somebody once said about snowdrops, what's your favorite snowdrop? It's the one I'm currently looking at. 
Um, and it's not quite like that with failures because some I like more than I like others. Um, but they they stretch me. I like things that I didn't think I was going to like. Um, and they have they have details that are surprising. There's, there's, if you look at the yellow variety, sometimes they're almost iridescent. They've got a sort of gold sheen on them. Yes. I mean, if you look at Hamari gold, for example, and like, it's like like a magic flower. Yes. Um, and I and I, and I can only endorse people's enthusiasm for these fantastic sort of lousy magic flowers. But if you want to introduce them into your garden, then I think they can always be really, really light. So I keep coming back to hot pinks and dark reds myself. And go from there. One of the combinations this past year that I grew, that I, I showed people several times, that it just it's, it's a bit of a mind-blowing experience for them, is Verone's Obsidian, which is one of the little, very dark orchid class. And then with mm-hmm. sh- paired with Shiloh Noel, which is mm-hmm. you know, semi dinner plate, but the two of them both have a little bit of that iridescent quality, and they just worked mm-hmm. beautifully together. But yet they're completely opposites on the color spectrum and shape. And yeah. that's for me. That's been one of the big things that you notice when you grow nine thousand dahlias, Naomi, and you grow almost two hundred varieties of them. That you go, wow, there's a certain interplay between them that still works, even when they are of yeah. a different class or of a different color. Yes, it's very hard to clash dahlias in actual fact, I'd say. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep trying, but uh, yes. so far, if you pick a big bunch of dahlias, you almost can't help it looking good. So the entire, I, I think you would, as a gardener, you're for yourself. Do you in your own garden, uh, how many, because you said you have a much smaller urban garden that you're currently working in, is it something for you? Do you change out your dahlias annually? Your snowdrops are obviously there permanently, but how are you finding room? Are you transitioning a lot of plants in and out every year as we get into the spring here? I, my job, it's, it's part of my job is experimenting with new varieties. Um, it's always easier to write about something and talk about something if you've actually grown it. So I choose a selection which I like. Um, I'd better to say my friends do really well out of my um, my tendency to propagate things. So I'll take cuttings and uh, you know, just just because it's there. Right? If I've got to buy a rose or um, if I buy, I don't know what, salvia, um, I'll wander past and go, oh, look, I've just got, oh, look, that's got a root on my put that in there. But I, I do like dahlias very much. I kind of need to keep the, the ball rolling, but I always keep the ones that I really like. Um, you can't fit everything in. So it, it, it's one of those, it's a, it's a tension, shall we say. It's, it's a tension between, right, look- um, between keeping what you like and keeping a nice collection of things. And actually making sure that what you keep doing is, is fresh and up to date and interesting and, you, and you've got the experience of how different sorts of things grow. Let's close with this. These are two topics that I'm at, I just want your opinion on it. Both semi-complicated in the world of, of dahlias and at times controversial. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're in a moderate climate, should you lift? Your dahlia tubers, yes or no? I think it depends on what soil you're on. If you've got really good drainage, then you can probably get away with leaving them in the soil. Um, if you're on heavy clay, lift every time. 
that's not yes or no. I Number know. two. No. <laughs> yes, no, that, that was very good. That was very good. <laughs> Number number now number two. I'm springing you on this one. But this has been one I've just got my eye on, and if, and if it hasn't struck your your radar, no worries. Dahlia tubers when you purchase mm-hmm. single finger tubers or clump tubers. If you had a preference, which would you pick? Finger tubers or clump tubers? So are these tubers that are separated out or like part of the whole sort of hand of bananas? Yes. I'd always try and grow the biggest root that I could you know, initially. Whatever it is that I'm growing, I'd like the the, the quality of the, of the roots to be as big and solid and full of nutrients as I possibly could because then I know that I'm going to get a good performance that first year. That said, with dahlias, they get off so fast. If you treat them nicely and give them lots of water and sunshine and food, then the others will catch up very quickly. Add Naomi to the list. I, I asked you this question, Naomi, as we wrap up here on this week's Nacho's Glen House Stories, that it's been interesting that there's a bit of a controversy to me. At least I see it as a controversy. I may be a single person in this controversy, Naomi, but here in the States, there's a lot of, uh, I will use the word salesmanship, on the single finger tubers being somehow superior to the clump. Now, I preface this with many of the people claiming that are selling single finger dahlia tubers. Well, surely so. they start off with a clump and then they divide them up and then they sell them individually at an inflated price. Wouldn't that not be the case? Or, or, or I mis- yes. It's some misconception of mine. <laughs> no, you are completely correct. Okay. And I have. Tr- I, uh, yes, it's very. <laughs> and, and for someone who tries to stay grounded, in some horticultural sciences, Naomi, every time I see it, my I get a little bit of, it really makes me angry. If I'm being honest, Naomi, it makes me a little mad because I'm like, again, like we talked about with the dead plants at the uh, department or big box stores. I want for a lot of people, especially for myself, like in a very warm climate here in Tennessee, one of the advantages to the plump tuber is there's so much energy there right off the get-go. Yeah, yeah. So they literally leap out of the ground, where occasionally, if you get a single finger tuber, it's dehydrated at some level when you receive it, it's a little slower. It's got to go through that rehydration process. It's then eventually it gets up out of the ground. But problem being, you had to wait for your flowers for an extra month or so, Naomi, and who wants that if we could avoid it? So let's go clump a tuber. I would go for clump tuber. I mean, if I drop a tuber and a bit drops off and if there's any chance it'll grow, I'll always be planting that bit right away. But um, I, if, I, if I were going to buy one, uh, if I was going to buy something and I had a pot A or pot B, then I would go for the biggest, most solid thing with as many growing shoots and as, as many um, as big a root systems as I possibly could because, because I want to see action. Once again, people, this week's Nacho's Glen House Stories, we learned, number one, that Naomi has a fascinating track record as an author, and you couldn't be more opposite than snowdrops and dahlias, and we should all be adding at least one piece of a fruit orchard to our garden of any scale. Only dreams I've had have been in the daytime 
Anything to get away from the straight line the straight line that I walk With all the medicated masses Creating minds outlined in chalk I've always bordered on the edge of something My mind goes where very few dare to tread Is it wrong that I'm dying, trying hard to live So abandon, break my back For a world that just won't give a little bit Doors close on open minds And you can be comfortable, but you ain't safe inside, no On the public string Whatever happened to being Who you want to be It's all so irrational With unrealistic views They light the hoop on fire And expect you to jump through With doors closed On open minds And you can be comfortable But you ain't safe inside, no We never make it, oh, we never make it out alive No, we never make it out of this crazy thing called life Oh, the real world's what it is and what it ain't It's insignificant, but it's On open minds And you can be comfortable But you ain't safe inside, no